Well, as many of you know by now, um, I have an ability through expository preaching to find moments within larger passages that you're really probably hoping I'm going to cover, but I have an incredible ability to slow down. Um, I find things that are just unbelievable. Um, I I make uh, what I feel to be hopefully sometimes better than others necessary appendages to make this text gives me one such appendage to be able to make this week. I, it gives me an opportunity to talk of something within the text a little bit beyond what we're grasping from, just the simplicity of what's being stated there, and try to pause there for a moment and, and hopefully um, work hard together to, to open it up for our great benefit. So in handling the passage this morning, I'm handling it kind of uh, in this manner, we'll start with the opening of the text in verse 13. That, that's where you see um, Gabriel appearing to Zechariah. And we wound down our time last week by concluding there, and, and I'm beginning there yet again. So verse 13 is where we'll begin this text with Zechariah's appearance. Then as we work through that just by way of introduction, I'm going to hit you with an appendage. So there's going to be a, a center section that we're going to work on what we just grasped in this dazzling appearance. And then, so that's part two, and then part three, I'll come back into the narrative itself, and we'll see Gabriel's response to Zechariah. So Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah, a a segue appendage time that's critical and important, and then we'll come back to the narrative itself as it stands with Zechariah's response uh, and Gabriel's response back to him. The text opens, if you look with me then, jumping right in in verse 13, as was just read for you, the angel said to Zechariah, now you remember from last week, Zechariah is at this point offering ministry, um, that is, incense upon the temple altar, and he's in the place of prostrating himself before the altar, praying particularly for the deliverance of Israel. So it is his, um, you know, the, the apex of his ministerial career is this opportunity that he has been given. And here he is executing the task of ministry before the altar. And he is not praying for, perhaps he is praying beyond the more narrow focus. But there is no way that he is praying for something other than what is his primary task in prayer at this particular moment. And that is the deliverance of Israel. So keep that in mind as he's praying for salvation to come to the house of Israel, that God would extraordinarily visit his people and bring about the promised Messiah of God in verse 13. And the angel appeared and then said to him, now this is critical here as we grasp it, do not be afraid, right? I mean, he would be terrified. It's a very normal thing. If we look in the Old Testament scriptures or we continue on throughout the course of the New, primarily we can look at the book of Revelation that we've covered. When an angel or or messenger of God appears before a man, that man typically, it follows, he falls as though dead or has some manner of terrific experience where he feels, I would like to be anywhere but here right now. Is his gut reaction to the experience. So a tender word of Gabriel says, do not be afraid. Now, what notice in the text, uh, why would Gabriel, or uh, why would Zechariah not fear in this moment? What is the word of peace and assurance that Gabriel provides that otherwise terrified Zechariah? Notice, four. And right there, when you hit that four, you're saying, oh, there's probably, there's most likely a grounds here. 
This is the grounds of the text. This is, this is the bottom line, and then I'm working up from there. So I hear, don't be afraid. And now I find out why. The grounds for my confidence. In this exchange, Gabriel says, here is why you should not be afraid at my appearing before you in this moment of ministry. Your prayer has been heard. Now, it's important what we note here that Zechariah is to find confidence in this moment in accordance with his prayer having been heard. Gabriel is affirming something significant here for you at this very moment. I touched on it in our conclusion last week, and I'm launching from it going forward. I don't want you to miss either its end last time or its opening now. Gabriel is affirming to Zechariah, and he is affirming to each one of us in the room right now that God makes due use of your ordinary prayer life in the accomplishing of his extraordinary purposes. He is a God of means. Is he bound to work by means? Absolutely not. Is he sovereign and free to work above and beyond the ordinary means? Absolutely. But is he a God who delights to dwell in the ordinary? Yes. He is gracious to condescend to us by the ordinary means of the word and prayer. So here Gabriel mentions to Zechariah and to you, God delights in your prayer. He hears it. And there's something interesting here about Zechariah because we'll know later his response. It's it's striking. He's praying for the extraordinary deliverance of Israel. Gabriel appears and tells him, your prayer, that one, has been heard. And you'd think Zechariah would shoot forward with great success and confidence in what is about to be disclosed to him about his prayer being heard. But that's not exactly what we see in Zechariah's response. Consider what is about to take place is three extraordinary pronouncements Gabriel's about to tell Zechariah. Now remember, is Zechariah supposed to hear the content of this vision and shrink back? No, because Gabriel's already told him, have confidence. How? Because your prayer about deliverance has been heard. That's what this is about. Don't shrink back. Don't doubt. Don't fear. Don't be disturbed. Lay hold of what I'm saying to you by faith. Your prayer, Zechariah, the one you're praying right now, on behalf of the people of God, has been heard. Now hear how God is going to answer it. Hear how God is going to execute the salvation of his people. Now in the disclosure of what God's going to do, don't find yourself shrinking back, being utterly disturbed, being filled with doubt, but rather take confidence in what I'm telling you because it's connected to your prayer for deliverance. Gabriel will unveil or unpack this delivering work of God for the sake of his people with three extraordinary provisions. So granted, 
It would be difficult to any of us hearing some of the extraordinary provisions that God is about to do in the deliverance of his people. But again, think of Zechariah as Gabriel speaks to him. Take confidence. Zechariah, this is what God can do. He can do the extraordinary. And he does so by making due use of the ordinary. This should, before we move on to what those extraordinary provisions are, should give confidence to each one of us that God hears the prayers of his people. What is it that you think would be otherwise extraordinary for God to do? Can you take confidence that by means of your ordinary prayers, God can do the extraordinary? He can. He is able. And this is exactly what Gabriel is saying to Zechariah. Now notice what these extraordinary provisions, by way of ordinary prayers, God is about to do in the salvation of his people. The first one, I have three of them for you, and then the appendage. Number one, the extraordinary pronouncement that, uh, that Gabriel makes to Zechariah. This week when I was working on this text, I interchanged their names all the time. So at some point, I attribute Zechariah to the angel or messenger of God. Just pardon me up front. The first of uh, Gabriel's word to Zechariah is there will be an extraordinary birth. That's the extraordinary provision number one. By means of the ordinary prayers of his people, God will act in an extraordinary birth. Look at verse 13. So upon the grounds of your confidence that your prayer, that is the prayer for Israel's deliverance, has gone heard. That's why I'm here. And it will begin like this. Your wife Elizabeth? She will bear you a son, and you should call his name John. Extraordinary sign or extraordinary pronouncement that Zachariah now hears is that he will be a father. Your wife will have a child. Now think of, again, Zachariah hearing this, knowing his age, knowing the burden that they've bore. Indeed, Zachariah has prayed for Elizabeth for decades, considering this trouble. The, 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 the reproach is Elizabeth has felt it as his wife. He has prayed for decades for this exact thing. And now the Lord, or now Gabriel explains to him, it will begin. God's extraordinary work through the ordinary means is that your prayer for deliverance has been heard, and part and parcel of this deliverance is that your wife Elizabeth, who is otherwise barren, will have a son. There's two things here about the extraordinary pronouncement of his birth. Number one, or I should say A, salvation history will forever be changed by the momentous and miraculous birth of John. Salvation history will be changed forever by this momentous and miraculous birth of the boy John. The second aspect of this is that it heightens the significance of John's ministry by way of a barren Elizabeth. This too is a word to each of us. Do you think Elizabeth knew all those years when she described her own position among the people in verse 25, whether it was actual or perceived or a mixture of both, do you think Elizabeth ever in those times of reproach thought that God was deeply at work in this situation? In such an extraordinary manner? Certainly not. My point being, 
in difficult times, just because we cannot grasp specifically how God is at work, one, we're not under the burden to do so. Number two, we can take confidence that indeed, even if we cannot describe it particularly, he is particularly at work. God was working in Elizabeth for many years of barrenness. For what purpose? To heighten the significance of deliverance through John. She was in tremendous service to the Lord's redeeming program as a barren woman who seemed to be, by the community, under reproach. Maybe this is yet another case to each of us to don't judge a book by its cover. Oh, this is happening to you, that's why. Oh, how we all would have missed, swung and missed on Elizabeth. And how often we would err if we did the same judgment one with another. Or how often we would miss with feeble common sense judging ourselves in difficulty. This is exactly why. This could be the only reason why. This must be why God is. Extraordinary provision number one or extraordinary pronouncement number one begins with Elizabeth. Her barrenness will be changed and you will name him John. Normally that's reserved for the father. So Zechariah is already hearing, I'm going to name him John. I thought I get to name him. No, not this particular boy. Salvation history will be changed forever with the birth of this young boy. Number two, the extraordinary pronouncement number two, that again, Zechariah is not now supposed to hear and begin fading to the background, but he's supposed to move forward in confidence because it's rooted in his prayers having gone heard. Is an extraordinary ministry. Number two, there will be an extraordinary ministry with this boy. Look at verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. Significant here is again how often we see God's saving purposes are global or far-reaching. And that sometimes makes us feel, since God is global and God is far-reaching, sometimes we think he is either global and his work is global and far-reaching, or he is the God of the personal and the God of the intimate. God is not either a global and righteous king who is gathering people from all across the globe, or he is more personal and he is more individual and he is more intimate. It isn't an either-or relationship. You notice he speaks directly to the intimacy of Zechariah. Look at verse 14 of the very first portion. You. Think about the need, the hope. And the joy, the confidence, the encouragement that that direct address brings to Zechariah. Again, how we can pull out human emotion from the text and just think of it more sterile. Zechariah heard this, and they said that to him, and he did this, and then this occurred next. Some of us might not know the longing of a couple for a child. So we might immediately in this text detach. But with confidence, we can say, a couple who longs for a child, it can be a long, long, long season. A discouraging one. A heartbreaking one. And there's no reason to doubt that it was the same for Zachariah and Elizabeth. Well, we know Elizabeth told us it was for her. But if a man loves his wife, he bears the burden with her. 
he experiences the same heartache. And look at the intimacy and the encouragement and the love that God shows, not just as we can see to the world, but the world comprised of individuals. You, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. You're going to be a father. But it doesn't just stop there, Zechariah, unless you think that all of this is about you, just you, how quickly again, all or nothing. So now it's all about me? No, 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 no. It's not an either-or relationship. Either I care for the needs, hopes, and address the fears of individuals, or I care about everyone. It it is together wed. Verse 14, yes, you're going to be a father, Zechariah. You will have joy and gladness over this baby, and many will rejoice at his birth. Again, it isn't singularly about Zachariah and Elizabeth, but it isn't to the exclusion of their needs either. Look at verse 14 as it says, many will rejoice. Look at the corporate nature or the big picture of John's ministry. It goes well beyond just this humble couple. In verse 16, notice how it is described. And he will turn how many of the children of Israel? Many of the children of Israel. They will rejoice over him and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Look at verse 17. Much Power will rest upon this one. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. How many hearts? Many hearts, many fathers, many families. And we would translate it the same exact way as we look down the line to the disobedient. He will turn many who are disobedient to the wisdom of the just in the making ready for the Lord, a people who are prepared. Imagine Zechariah at this moment again. It's it's hard to kind of look outward and judge Zechariah as much as maybe we ought to receive with Zechariah indeed. These are tremendous and extraordinary provisions. We can see why he might shudder in receiving them well. But take confidence, Zechariah. I'm only telling you this gospel because God is pleased to do it according to the ordinary prayers of his people. Look at the third extraordinary provision that is made or extraordinary or pronouncement that is made by Gabriel immediately by making due use of ordinary means of prayer. God is extraordinarily at work and that is the third one is there will be an extraordinary salvation. There's an extraordinary birth with this boy. He will be an extraordinary man full of extraordinary ministry. And he will begin this journey with an extraordinary salvation. Look at verse 15. Four, and that gives grounds again. We find the grounds to verse 14. Zechariah is going to have joy as a father. You will be richly blessed. Your wife Elizabeth, she will be filled with excitement. And many beyond you will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. 
Now, a a small little comment here, because I don't want to rest long here, but maybe a small little comment here as you consider in the Old Covenant or or the Old Testament before this gospel, you're considering the vows of a Nazarite. Perhaps that is in your mind or maybe in a study Bible or there's a cross-reference there of the vows of a Nazarite who was in particular service to the Lord for a particular commission. Consider here, he makes reference to this because of the extraordinary ministry that John will have. The prohibition here is probably best associated with his public ministry of calling forward Israel, a people prepared to receive Christ, is that as he speaks in an extraordinary manner, his speech will not be, well, this man is a bumbling fool, or this man must be filled with wine, or what this man is saying about the coming Messiah is simply a drunken stupor. He has no more insight than any of us. So this is to the exclusion because of his ministry. There will be an exclusion of any possibility of doubt regarding the state of the mind of John the Baptist as he begins to preach in Israel. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, boy. No, 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 no. No strong drink. I'll walk one foot in front of the other. I can do this. Watch. You know, it, it, it put me through the test. The kingdom of God is at hand. So he must be given away from this due to the uniqueness of his ministry in time. But, but I, I join back into the text, and this is the point of extraordinary salvation. Even from his... Mo- oh, I skipped it. I just missed my own thunder. The next portion there in verse 15. He will be filled. That's where I wanted to go. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. The ordinary, Zachariah and Elizabeth, this ordinary godly couple in ministry, laid hold of Christ by faith as you have done most likely, and that is through faith, by grace, in the ordinary means of the word. That's how Zachariah and Elizabeth have come to be Uh, as they are described earlier, those who are righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. How did they get there? By ordinary means. They heard the word proclaimed to them. Even in the old covenant, Christ is present. Even in the law, one lays hold of him by faith. That's the rebuke of Christ. If, if If you read Moses, you would not despise me. You'd have keenly saw within him that he speaks of me. It isn't Jesus or the law. So here's this ordinary godly couple who has received through ordinary means the word implanted in their heart and by faith in the promises that God has made, they laid hold of them and experienced life, godliness, joy in ministry, Hope in their future that God would deliver upon his promises that they believe are absolutely integral. But now, here's this ordinary godly couple now hearing in this extraordinary provision. Their son, however, will be the object of God's immediate, not mediated, as though Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? So, So right now, this would be an immediate work. What we are is we're hearing the we're hearing the mediated work. So here we, here's God, and he says to us through the word. Many stray by looking outside of this for a more immediate word. But God has spoken mediately 
through the word. The spirit uses the word in our hearts. In this situation with John, he indeed, Gabriel is affirming, he will experience, he will be the recipient of an immediate regenerating work of God, even in the womb. We know that God's grace is sovereign. We know that God's grace is absolutely free and unfettered. And because we all, from texts like this, we know that what we see is that God can work apart from means. God is putting his effectual love upon a prenatal John. Now, how do you, Pastor, how do you know for sure that the filled with the Spirit is a work of regeneration and not some sort of special dosage due to his ministry that is not a regenerating work? In other words, how can you know that John the Baptist was actually redeemed in his mother's womb? How can you know such? Are we sure that's what's what's being said here by Gabriel? Or are we drawing away and having too far of a conclusion that it's not bound by what's really being said? We'll look over in the text, if I could help, before we join to the appendage. Um, Look over in the uh, inspired account by Luke, who then is speaking of Elizabeth's own commentary of what John did know or did have in her own womb. Verse 41 uh, of the same chapter. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now again, how do we know that this isn't just some sort of fortuitous event? Like it occurred, it just simultaneously happened. Maybe she tripped. Maybe something occurred. Maybe whatever she ate that morning caused the baby to be more, more movable, uh, seeking to move around in the womb a little bit more. We all, as mothers, you know that that happens sometimes. Who knows? You'll eat something and the baby is really active that, that night or something. How do we know that that's not really what took place? And now Luke is kind of putting that together. Well, we know that isn't the case on multiple levels, but just let me show you how it's not the case within the text. And Elizabeth, in verse 41 was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, here is Elizabeth's commentary on what occurred. Divinely inspired and without error in this account by Luke. The baby in my womb leaped for joy. John leaped for joy. However that is described to us, that we might receive well what was spoken of already, that he was filled with the Spirit even in his mother's womb. He didn't just flip in the womb. The divine commentary is, He got excited. He leaped. Just because? No, for joy is attached to his movement. God is doing an extraordinary work, Gabriel says to Zechariah. You will have an extraordinary birth. First of all, your barren wife will have a child. You will be a father. There will be an extraordinary ministry that is about to take place. And it will be beginning with this young boy who will be born in your home. He will be an extraordinary man filled with extraordinary ministry. 
And it will begin even in his mother's womb, for he will experience an extraordinary salvation. Gabriel is saying, indeed, Zechariah, God is answering your prayer in a most glorious way for you and Elizabeth to be a happy couple. The needs and the hopes and the fears of individual people, God cares. And for all the peoples well beyond just you. If I could then make an appendage to our time together by three things, I think, and here, here is our segment that we're, I'm building out of this extraordinary work of salvation, that he will be filled with his mother's womb, and then, uh, with the Spirit from his mother's womb, and then joining back to verse 41 through 44, that that indeed is a work of immediate regeneration. John has been born of Christ in his mother's womb. I want to make three necessary, what I believe, and I'll put them forward to you for your consideration, is where I think we together, as believers looking at this text, need to make three necessary conclusions. And I'm not saying they're hopeful conclusions. I think they're necessary conclusions. We should necessarily conclude these three truths based on what we just saw in the extraordinary, sovereign, and free salvation of God. Three of them. Number one, God's extraordinary gift of salvation can and sometimes does visit a child even in the womb. My first necessary conclusion, I don't think it's up for grabs, it is of necessity based on this work a conclusion that we, at least I, must draw, and that is God's extraordinary gift of salvation can and sometimes does visit a child even in the womb. Let me give you a spattering of texts for your consideration to jot down, and you can look them up later. I won't have time to go over them unless I make an appendage to the appendage, and then all kinds of appendages. But, so I, I'll just give you a spattering of text to consider and that is beginning with David in Psalm 22. Now again, each of us will have to look at these texts and consider the language present. We'd have to consider how is David describing him being falling upon God even in his mother's womb, being drawn unto him before he is even born. But we can consider David in Psalm 22. Let me give you another one. The writer of Psalm 71, of who we're not exactly sure is, but consider Psalm 71. So David in Psalm 22 Psalm 71, and what's being described there by the writer. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. I just offer this to you for further consideration. Meditate, consider it, read. Again, is this possible that God can and sometimes does visit a child with redeeming love even while in the mother's womb? Isaiah 46, 3 and 4. I give that to you because that passage there is interesting as well as it speaks more corporately of the elect within Israel, that they were experiencing some measure, not again all, but some experiencing it before they are born. He carries them out through time all the way by the end of verse 6 in their old age. They will never be left. And we consider these texts for confirmation of this unique, and I submit to you, it is without a doubt unique. But before you move on too quickly, it is, however, possible. 
that God save a child even while in his mother's womb. Again, I'll make one last comment. Is that normative? Is that God's regular practice? No. I think the testimony speaks that it wouldn't be the normal practice. Because again, how is faith created within, within the hearer? By the preaching of the word through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is his normative process. This is the work of the missionary enterprise. So is it normative? That this is how we should walk around with presumptive regeneration upon our children? Like, I'm sure that God just saved them in the womb somewhere. No, no. We're told to presume upon that. Never. But is it outside the bounds that God indeed can sovereignly do it? I think quite clearly evidenced here in the text that I've given you, it's absolutely well within his bounds to do so. This text, along with the text that I have given you for further consideration. Again, uh, let me say what I said last week. Let, Let me pair it together right now. What the church confesses publicly is always of greater importance than what one person interprets individually. That's how cults get started. An individual's interpretation is prized because of his charisma or because of his schooling or because of his unschooling or because of who knows what. But that one individual rises in ranks and his individual unique interpretation becomes the movement. And we have a ton of that in evangelicalism where we're a celebrity culture just as much. But what the church confesses publicly and can be tested and can be rooted in history is of greater importance than any one individual's private interpretation. I put myself in that same category. So let me provide to you how the church has viewed these particular texts that I've offered you, what these texts have provided the church for ages. And that is, these texts have provided unto the church a web of great comfort. How so? In two ways. Let me give them to you. These texts, for your consideration, isn't for some theological debate somewhere. It is for a web of comfort to your soul. Number one, infants dying in infancy. Again, I don't know each one of your experiences at this time. If you've experienced miscarriage and the heartbreaking experience that is the burden, I've been somewhat acquainted with it through someone close to us who's experienced that first season of time. An irregular uh, pregnancy positive and the negative, a positive and a negative, a positive and a and the burden that that bear, comes to bear, the toll that that takes. The church has found great comfort. Not me, but only me in that I also belong to the public confession. That infants dying in infancy can experience the mercy of God. Not only through miscarriage, but when we think of the heinous evil that is raging in our age of abortion. The cry of the unborn does not go unheard by God. Again, am I saying that he does 
save every infant in all cases and all. I can't speak. I, I, as Westminster says, we need to be measured in our comment what goes beyond the text. I, I can't speak and peer into the mysteries of God and bring them down from heaven and disclose them. None of us can. But has he spoken in such a manner as us to be able to put something together which seems to be representative of his sovereign and free grace? Yes. The second measure that this brings a web of comfort to is the mentally incapable, those who are mentally incapable of understanding the gospel. Typically, a debate about this ensues, whether those who are mentally handicapped, we could say, or deficient or incapable, an infant's dying in infancy, and outside of experience and ignorance, we tend to draw battle lines, and then we begin to shoot at one another, and it's incredibly deconstructive and unhelpful to everyone, even the consciences in the room, when we speak so flippantly of life. These texts that I have provided to you built out of what we have seen with God's immediate and sovereign work with John has always consistently provided a web of comfort considering these two additional complexities. Do we know what God is doing according to his free and sovereign grace in the mentally handicapped? No, we do not. Should we just speak forward with ignorant judgments? Biblically uninformed. No, we should not. And same with infants dying in infancy. From this text, then, I just summarize an appendage necessary conclusion number one is that we believe, the church believes, that in such cases, as God sees fit, which is an important caveat, as God sees fit, because this mystery lies with him, that his spirit sovereignly works when, where, and how he pleases. This we confess. Number two, the second necessary conclusion I see in this text that we must draw out of this extraordinary work, free and sovereign grace, is that God's extraordinary gift of salvation should shape how we, Christian parents, view our children. God's extraordinary gift of salvation, as evidenced here, and the spattering of texts I provided you, should not just fall on deaf ears as the people of God, but more so, it should shape. In fact, I would press that as a necessary conclusion, it must shape how Christian parents here, the people of God, view their own children. I would say it to you in this way. As is the case with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now again, It isn't like we're sterilely studying two people in time. This is a gospel to the people of God. So I would unite ourselves with Zechariah and Elizabeth and say, as is the case with Zechariah and Elizabeth, so also does God work with you. That God is a covenant-keeping God. His covenantal blessings overflow to us and to our Children, have you considered why God brought you together as a married couple? Have you thought of it? I'm sure at some point you have. Do you continue to think on it? Why did God unite us in marriage? 
Malachi 2 speaks of his hatred of divorce. You can go, don't turn there. I'll give you the text. You can look there then. Matthew 2, 14 through 16 gives us information even, again, a timely word on divorce in our culture, even within the church. Do you know why God primarily considers a hatred for divorce? Do you know why? Does it shape why you stay together? For why God brought us together. He hates it, he describes there in verses 14 through 16, because he brought you and your wife together in order that, he says, he might possess godly offspring. That's why you're having a child isn't some random act of, you know, nature's necessities. Oh, wow, we ended up with a child. We don't believe in such randomness. Then why did he give us one? That he himself might possess that child as godly offspring. Consider further, you think, in the law as given to the people of God for both eras of the covenant, both Old Covenant and New Covenant ministry, we possess 66 canonical books that we confess. All Scripture is Christian Scripture. But how little do we remember God's promise in the Ten Commandments even through the law that He keeps covenant to a thousand generations and that in Deuteronomy 7 He pledges to bless the womb of His people. That's just random. You know how children are made. Children come from that. We're not atheists. They are a privilege. That's why the psalmist describes them as a blessing and a heritage, not random little children. But they are a godly inheritance. My point with all of this, what is the greater point that I'm trying to draw? What I think to be, in this extraordinary view, a necessary uh, conclusion, my point with this particular piece is this. Are we, mom and dad, raising our children with spiritual formation as primary? Again, if it is that God brought me and Adri together and then gave us children that he himself says to Adam, they are mine. I gave them that I might possess them as my offspring. Then am I, Adam, raising them with spiritual formation as primary in their raising. That matters more than sports. It matters more than free time. It matters more than school. Spiritual formation, because that's why God gave me a wife, and that's why God gave us offspring. That's a necessary conclusion. One last point under this is, do we believe that God has a plan for each of the children, and it is our duty to seek and to serve His purposes in them? Through spiritual formation, family worship, praying for them, and praying with them and communicating to each of them that they belong to God. Folks, preparing to have children. Let this resonate. 
It's not a random baby. It is that God might possess through you his people, more people. The third and necessary conclusion then I want to draw from the text, and I'm running so far behind. Number three, the third and necessary conclusion from this extraordinary work of sovereign grace in John is that God's extraordinary gift of salvation, God's extraordinary gift of salvation must, and if you could look here, I have must highlighted. I don't want to miss that part, and I don't want you to miss that part. I think, yeah, at first I thought, should. I changed it to must, and I highlighted it. God's extraordinary gift of salvation must shape how Christians view personhood. Must shape how Christians view personhood. What do I mean by that? Well, notice how Luke refers to John under divine inspiration. Verse 15 for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then look at this language, even from his mother's womb. Do you notice what he's saying there? Luke presents John in the womb as a person. Biblically, theologically, only persons can be made regenerate. Do you see what I'm saying? Luke is presenting the prenatal John as a person, not as a fetus. Or a random networking of tissue that might someday, someday pass the birth canal and at that point gets personhood. But John is, Luke is describing John by inspiration as a person in the womb. One other piece of information regarding how this must, it's not up for grabs. It's not up for grabs if we lay hold of the text rightly. And it is that the term used here for baby in verse 44. So if you look over at verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, we already covered this in, in zero in on 44, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Can I show you the next usage? Flip over to chapter 2. Look at verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Luke in divine inspiration, uses the exact same term to describe a prenatal John as he uses to describe a born and lying in a major Jesus Christ. 
they both, in both conditions, are persons. I don't say this because we're on the 40th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. I know that we are. You know that we are. But that's not why I'm saying it. Who cares? It's completely secondary. That's the point. We're the church, the people of God. Personhood, as God defines it from the text of Holy Scripture, is always true. Every single day, it has to shape how we engage in our politics. You know me. I've been preaching here in the pulpit at Redeemer uh, primarily for, for coming up on eight years. I think I might have spoken on like a positive politic a handful, maybe five times in that time. I'm not seeking to turn it into a political stump speech for anyone at any point either. That's not what this is about. I get, but I, yet I fear the impulse of our generation. I fear that the impulse is that all the blowhards have taken over many of our issues. And when I say blowhards, I'm speaking of politicians that pretend to represent the evangelical interests. Okay? I see what you see. They bloviate, they scream, they tear down others, and they claim, and it drives me as insane as you, to represent our views. But I think the impulse of our generation is, therefore, we don't want guilt by association, so we take up with the wrong views in order to be better perceived socially in our circles. Politics aside, we the church have to get back to the text of Holy Scripture and be shaped thereby regardless if it's an obnoxious, blowhard-type individual that stands and says he represents us, and we fear, I don't want to be associated with this individual. It doesn't give us right, however, you don't have to be, but it doesn't give us right to then come up with unbiblical positions or pretend that God and personhood do not shape or mustn't shape our politics. The issue of personhood, as biblically expressed here in John one and or in Luke one and Luke two, please, it has to be a transcendent issue in your politics. Now that's all I can say. I'm endorsing no one as if you cared, but I'm not. Because it's a theological, biblical issue. It's just being used, but it's much more than that. Luke, by divine inspiration, in this extraordinary gift of salvation, describes for us our biblical footing in the debate. The zygote, or the fertilized egg, with its DNA, is a person. Only people could be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm over time. 
Let's pray. Father.